Hi guys, just a heads up before this interview, in case you listen with little ears, this might not be the episode for that. This episode does include swear words. We gave Kara the opportunity to be completely herself and that is a part of her. I'm Amy. And I'm Abby. And as women, we are constantly comparing ourselves to others. But your life isn't supposed to look like hers. Being your best self means standing firm in your decisions and always being willing to grow with a purpose. We get vulnerable and real with an honest look into the challenges and triumphs we all face. Every woman listening gets the opportunity to choose what life looks like for herself. We are so excited for today. We're interviewing Kara Lowenthal, host of the incredibly popular podcast, Unfuck Your Brain. Kara is a master life coach that has degrees from a couple schools you may have heard of, Harvard Law School and Yale. And before stepping into her current entrepreneur life, she practiced as a civil rights lawyer. Kara is an incredibly dynamic, thought-provoking feminist rock star, and it is a complete honor to have her on the podcast today. Kara, could you introduce yourself for our listeners? Yeah, I think you covered it well. I'm thrilled to be here. And you pronounced my name right. So that's like automatic brownie points. I have to say I practiced a couple times. <laughs> You'd be shocked how many people are like, I love your podcast. I listen to it all the time. Introducing Cara Lowenthal. <laughs> not listening that closely, obviously. <laughs> well, your podcast is binge worthy. I know that Abby and I listened to a ton of episodes while we were preparing for the interview. We're officially chickens, as you affectionately call your <laughs> listeners. There's so much that we want to cover with you. So we're going to go ahead and dive right in. Can you tell us what led you to thought work and coaching while maybe even explaining for the people that are unfamiliar what those are? Yeah. Um, so I... <laughs> I have like, you know, my whole story of how I found this work, but I have to say that, um, which I will tell you in a second, recently this high, um, not even high school friend of mine, a friend I've known since I was six years old. So we went to like, you know, K through 12 together. She sent me, she was home with her parents and she sent me a photo of a card I had written her when we were, I think, freshmen in college, maybe. So I was like 18 years old. And I was like, oh my God, I've been saying the same shit for like 20 years. Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> like the whole card was like, I think we should ourselves too much and we like care too much about XYZ instead of what Matt and I was like, oh my God. It's like, I keep thinking I'm discovering new things, <laughs> but like, not only are they like not new to the world in some cases, obviously humans have been thinking about the mind and how it works for a long time, but apparently sometimes they're not even new to me. I've just forgotten that I've been saying them. Um, so I guess one version of the story would be like, I have always thought a lot about what the human experience is, what the human mind is like. I just think I've always, I grew up reading a ton of fiction. My father is a rare book dealer and we didn't have a TV and he had me reading Little Women when I was six years old, which is a whole other story. But I just, <laughs> I think that I like, I think that when you read a lot of fiction, you become very cognizant early on of like all the different ways that humans experience and think about the world. Um, and I also, you know, like every woman in this society, absorbed a lot of bullshit about all the things that were supposedly wrong with me that needed to be fixed. <laughs> so I think I was always like going to therapy, getting into yoga, trying meditation, like just looking for 
what I could find that would, you know, I think I'd like mixed motivations, like on the one hand would improve me or fix me so I could finally like myself. But then on the other hand, like the more positive motivation, I just think I've always felt like being a human seems really challenging for a lot of people. And there have got to be some like easier ways <laughs> to exist in the world, like better ways to do this. Um, and then I found my teacher. She was not the first coach or teacher that I, you know, followed or studied with, but for whatever reason, you know, you're ready to hear it when you're ready to hear it. And the way she presented it really worked with my brain. And so it just clicked. And I finally felt like when I say thought work, what I mean is the practice of intentionally not only becoming aware of your thoughts, which you might do in some meditative practices, but of consciously and purposefully engaging in your thoughts to change them, right? So it's like literally learning to think different things on purpose. Um, And that felt to me like the missing piece. Like I had done all this stuff that was about awareness and seeing what was happening in my mind and even not attaching to it and the mind-body connection, all of that, but nobody had ever taught me how do you literally change what's happening in your brain. I didn't even know that was an option until I found this work. Well, and it's all about the intention. And I think so many of us are looking for that hack, like we're looking for the the easy streets. Mm-hmm. And the thought work is far from that. And I'm no stranger to the world of life coaching. I've worked with a life coach and then business coach for about three years now. And during this time, my life definitely has changed. And one thing that we're always working on is this thought work. And it's pretty remarkable how we can change our thoughts. We can change our feelings to really take more control of our lives. And I'm a person who just loves that control piece of it. (laughs) But I know for so many of us, we just want to stay positive. We want to stay happy all the time. But Cara, I love how you speak about having both negative and positive thoughts to really give us that full spectrum, that necessary spectrum of the human experience. So could you go into some more detail on how true thought work does include feeling and being aware of all those negative emotions that also serve us? Yeah. I mean, I think that like humans in general are predisposed to seek pleasure and avoid pain, right, evolutionarily. But also we live in a society that is kind of particularly bad, I think, about selling us this idea that we can and should be happy all the time. Like that that is a cultural expectation, that that is possible or desirable or achievable. And it's just not, right? And that's not, um, it's, that's not necessarily what you're taught in different societies. It's not a universal truth about humans. In fact, I think much closer to a universal truth about humans is that you're not supposed to be happy all the time, (laughs) where you're supposed to have a mix of positive and negative emotion. And so much of our suffering comes from the unwillingness to even have the negative emotion. So I was just describing it to someone the other day as like, there's the kind of negative emotion you experience because you're a human and like, you know, sadness is part of life. Grief is part of life. If you love someone and they die, you'll feel sad. Like that's normal. We want that to happen, right? That's the normal pain. But then we, so that's like having a headache. It's like a natural, normal thing. Emotions come and go, just like headaches come and go. Doesn't mean anything has gone wrong. But then what we do is bang our head against a wall trying to get rid of the headache, right? Now we've made it so much worse. And that's what happens when we think that we shouldn't be having a negative emotion, that it means something has gone wrong, that we need to get rid of it. We amplify and like exponentially increase our own suffering with all of that resistance and thinking it should go away or it means something has gone wrong or we need to solve it. So to me, like a lot of this practice is emotional allowance and acceptance. You learn how to differentiate between the kind of negative emotion that 
you want to have and is part of human life and even serves you to deepen your human experience and the kind of negative emotion that is kind of self-created for no reason and that you want to change. Yeah, I hear that. I um, When you taught that if you just ignore that emotion, it just keeps getting louder. Um, so for a lot of us, I feel like we're trying to outrun them when if totally. we would address it and work through it, it would... Um, it would go better for us, it seems like. Um, but right. Cara, I am a brand new member of The Clutch, um, which right. is your feminist coaching community. And I was doing week one. Mm-hmm. And you spoke about this concept of not wanting to feel negative emotions. And you talked about us wanting to numb out. Mm-hmm. When you said that, I had a flashback to the beginning of the COVID pandemic when my husband and I were binging this new HBO series um, and like seeking to drink more wine. Like we were seeking the numb out. Those are two things that we don't usually practice. Um, But at the time I was feeling very anxious. My thoughts would race. I was having a lot of like what if scenarios. I was feeling it physically with Um, feeling tense, Mm -hmm. uh, shallow breathing. Like I know that that was anxiety that I was trying to run away from. Um, Can you tell us a couple ways that we could work through that actual emotion instead of um, instead of numbing out? Because I will say numbing out felt like the easier option. Totally. It will always feel easier because it produces dopamine in your brain, which is what your brain wants, right? Like human babies have a preference for sweetness. That's dopamine being released in your sweetness, right? Produces dopamine being released in your brain. Anything that produces dopamine, like drinking, like sex, like watching Netflix, shopping, porn, anything people become quote unquote addicted to is a dopamine producing behavior. So it's always going to feel easier, And so, yes, I I will teach a tool in one second, but I do want to say, I think that I'm a little bit different in the way I approach this. And a lot of coaches, I think, because, well, I don't think any coaches teach you should feel ashamed of your buffering. But I just, I think like there's sometimes this expectation in the coaching world or a way of teaching about numbing or buffering that like the goal is to get to zero and that that's better. Like it's better to not not buffer than to buffer. So I think there's all this shame and moral judgment around it. And especially women, we just add it to like the list of things that we're, it's like now we're not doing self-improvement good enough. Right, right. right. Take it to the extreme. And I always say like, listen, animals buffer. Seriously. Like horses will eat fermented hay to get a little drunk. This is like a natural thing that animals, including humans, will do. We like dopamine. It does not mean, it's not a moral failing. And I don't even think it's always bad necessarily. Like we develop coping behaviors because they help us cope with things that we don't know how to cope with. Now, I do believe we can learn how to cope better, but it's not going to be overnight. And so when you start on a numbing behavior, you should just expect that you are sometimes going to still use it. And the more you judge and shame yourself about that, the more you then need to cope with more negative emotion. Right. So I don't ever teach that I think the goal should be like zero numbing or zero buffering, some people call it. Like it's all about understanding what you're doing, choosing if you want to do it on purpose, not judging and shaming yourself. In terms of how to allow emotion so that you get you get to build the skill of being able to be uncomfortable rather than numb out, 
And I think number one is what I just talked about, just noticing that you are thinking this negative emotion needs to go away and is a problem, right? Just that by itself, if you can remember, oh, all I need to do is allow this to be here. One of my coaching colleagues named um, Clotilde Duzolier says it's um, not a, it's not, this isn't a problem to solve, it's a feeling to allow, right? So even just reminding yourself oh, what's happening is that I feel anxiety in my body and I don't want to feel that. And I think that means something has actually gone wrong in the world. That's not what it means. It just means my brain is thinking a thought that produces the feeling of anxiety in my body. That's all it means. So that's like the first level. And then as you know, what I teach in the clutch in more detail is that you can use somatic practices, meaning like going into your body to help you process and allow emotion. So I teach a practice in the clutch of describing the emotion to yourself in your body in certain detailed ways that distracts your brain from what it's thinking and allows you to ground back in your body and signal to your nervous system that you are not actually under physical threat, you are safe, everything is fine. This resonates with me so much, like exactly how you say it, Kara. I have buffered with exercise and then with food for almost 20 years now. Mm-hmm. And it definitely manifests in like cleaning and those types of things with just current changes. So I love how you go through that and not getting back to zero because you're right. So many coaches do talk about getting to that zero baseline. But let's switch yeah, I'm just like occasionally you're going to eat ice cream when you feel sad and it's not the end of the world. It's not the end of the <laughs> world. Like, it's right. all of that black and white, all <laughs> and nothing thinking. And also like you have to notice some, it's like because of our cultural preconceptions, right? People who buffer with exercise are lauded, right? And applauded. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then people who buffer with ice cream are demonized, you know? So it's all a little more like we need, we want to become aware of all the ways that we are trying to escape our emotions, even if the rest of the world is like good for you. Right, people restrict their eating as a way of numbing and buffering, but they get applauded. Right, so it's not as simple as kind of. I think people, we have to expand our concept of what people are using to numb out to avoid just falling into like the things that society already demonizes, and then like you know have a little bit less yeah black and white perfectionist thinking with ourselves. Oh, that black and white. Yep, speaking to me there again. <laughs> and and Cara, switching gears a little, we absolutely have to tackle the idea of what we need from other people when it comes to apologies. And I was listening to one of your episodes on the subject and you said, quote, I think we cannot feel better unless the other person agrees with our interpretation of reality and our negative emotion about what happened. So can you tell us why this usually doesn't work? Yeah. I'm not sure if I misheard you or that was an amazing Freudian slip, but it sounded at the beginning like you said, you you were like, I believe we can't feel better. Oh, (laughs) that was definitely a Freudian slip. Yes. We, all all the, all the we's right now. (laughs) Well, and also because what I say is that it's, we, we think we need that, but we don't. Yeah. Brains are hilarious. Um, I think we have all had the experience of being mad at someone and they apologize and we're still mad. Right. Correct. Certainly anyone in a long-term relationship has had that experience, which is all the proof you need that a person's apology will not change your feelings. So all of that is based on what I teach as the fundamentals, which is that your thoughts cause your feelings. External circumstances, things outside of you don't cause your feelings. The reason we know that to be true is that your brain is the organ that has to interpret whatever comes at you, right? You have like your visual cortex and the parts of your brain that decode visual information, 
take the light signals that refract through your eye and decide what to tell you it is. Like that's a table, that's a deer, whatever, right? Somebody says something, you, your brain has to like decode what that language means and tell you what you're going to think about it. And that creates how you feel about it. It's like, think of it as a flow chart. It's like all stimuli goes through the brain and then that creates the feeling. Not So it's not that things outside of us create our feelings. So if you are mad because of your thoughts about what someone else did, them saying or doing anything is not going to change your feelings. Your own thoughts have to change. But why is this? This is so, so hard for people. I'm going to include myself. It's because we don't. Here's why it's so hard, honestly. Because we don't believe that we can change our thoughts or we don't know how. Right? So it's like if I said to you, listen, you can either like keep trying to steal someone else's car or build your own and you'll never succeed or you can build your own car. If you don't know how to build your own car, you're like, well, I know how to steal a car. So I'm going to keep trying to do that even though it never works because I just literally have no idea how to do this other thing. If you learn how to change your thoughts, then it becomes easier and easier and eventually your brain does it automatically, right? To not let your emotions be dependent on what well, your emotions are never truly dependent on what other people do, but to not believe the lie that your emotions are based on what other people do. I'm processing. It's like we think it's, it's what's crazy about brains. We think we can control someone else's brain when we're not controlling our own brains at all. You know, and um, I think when we're in a very close relationship, so I'll use the example of my husband it's like, it's very hard for me that I can only control my side because mm. it feels like, um, like I really want him to see my perspective because we're going to be engaging in this relationship for the foreseeable future. Does that make but sense? But you want him to, you want him to see your perspective. So I'm just going to coach you a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell, if that's okay. Tell me why it's important that he see your perspective? What will you get to feel if he sees your perspective? Like validated in the emotion that came up when he said the thing that made me upset. Right. So all you want to feel is validated, which is not really a feeling, but let's pretend it is a feeling. <laughs> what, <laughs> right. What you, what will you be thinking? Let's just, let's say it's a feeling. What will you be thinking when he apologizes and is like, oh my God, you're so right, honey. I completely understand everything you said is correct. I'm an idiot. What will you be thinking that will make you feel so good? I'd be like, oh my gosh, he gets it. Like he sees my need for more help in the morning with our children. Like he understands this need. And why is it important that he understand? What does it mean if he doesn't understand? What we get into is like the um, the action doesn't change. And so it feels it's very stressful. We're getting three little kids ready in the morning. And, and so if I'm like trying to communicate, I feel very overwhelmed at 7 AM. I'd really like you to have yourself ready. So for the next 20 minutes, we could get both all three of our children ready. Right. So Um, here's what you have to understand. And this is, I want to be really clear since I'm, this is like, we're not having a full session here. None of what we're talking about has to do with whether you should or want to end up taking the action of asking him to help more. Okay. Like we're going to put the action part aside. Okay. We're just talking about the thoughts and feelings. What's happening is that you feel overwhelmed 
and you think if he changed his behavior, you would no longer feel overwhelmed. Less overwhelmed. Okay. But that's not true because his behavior doesn't cause your feelings. (laughs) Right? So what you would have to figure out is what are you thinking when you feel overwhelmed? I'm thinking it'd be really nice to have some help right now. Uh Then I'd feel less overwhelmed. What if you were thinking, I've totally got this. I do this every day. How would you feel? I think I would feel better. And actually from your coaching, that's what I've been trying to like coach my brain into. It's like, it it just feels so easy to slip back into kind of the old way of thinking. Which is so normal and such an important point. And I have like multiple episodes on the podcast about this, right? Is that we are, brains are lazy, just evolutionarily. It's not a character flaw. All of our brains are lazy. Our brains evolved to just keep us alive. Your brain is always like, I'm going to save this glucose in case I need to run away from a lion later. I don't want to spend it thinking. <laughs> like that's how your brain is. I, in fact, it does spend it like ruminating about things that aren't helpful, but it, those are, it's used to those thoughts. Your brain will always pick. It's like your brain will always pick the well-traveled path, right? Your brain will always just be right. like, oh, I know this path through the forest. I don't have to spend any energy doing this. I can save my glucose for later. Your brain will always do that. It's a normal part of the process. The more we practice the new thought over time, it's like two um, like battery bars. You know, like one starts to go down and one starts to go up. Or like the path, the new path becomes clearer. The neurons that are wiring and firing together for the new thought become stronger and stronger. So what you're describing is exactly what you want to be doing. Nothing's going wrong. It's normal for the old thoughts to come up. You just keep practicing. It's like we want, it's that quick fix you talked about in the beginning. We want to come up with a great new thought and then we want the thought to do all the work. But no, we have to do the work. We have to practice the thought until like people, my clients will, you'll see posts in the clutch sometimes. We have an amazing Facebook group of people who post things like, well, the thought just isn't like sticking. And I'm like, yeah, it's not going to stick. It's not sticky. <laughs> like You have to stick, right? You have to practice oh, yeah. the thought. Yeah. What you're saying and again, makes like, sense. It's it's like an active Right. Um, like you wouldn't go to the gym once and be like, well, I bench pressed 20 pounds, so now I'm good for life. <laughs> right? like, you have to practice. And again, like this is so important for people listening who don't know a lot about the work. None of this has anything to do with whether you ultimately decide to ask your husband to help you or not. But it has to do with you not putting yourself in a situation where you will continually feel overwhelmed and out of control because you are making whether or not he ends up helping, which you can't control, the determiner of how you're going to feel. So good, Cara. Um, another like thing that I've implemented recently from one of your podcasts that I would tell people it was very life changing is it was one about defensiveness. Mm. And so I was wading through something that had come up um, and what you said had completely clicked for me. So I will tell you, I received this pointed message on Instagram. And as I was digesting through it, I thought, you know, a lot of this is just factually inaccurate. So I don't feel defensive because these are just untruths. 
But I have to say before that episode, I honestly would have wanted to point out every error or assumption that she had made so that I could be Mm -hmm. right. Mm. And this time I just sent back a respectful message and I bowed out of the conversation because it, it really felt like there wasn't any space for my thoughts inside the conversation. So I wanted to bring this up because I just feel like there is so much tension right now in the United States, so much going on, um, and people are finding themselves in all sorts of arguments. Like, how do we know when we should engage and when there are times where it might be better not to? So I think that that's, um, it's both a good question and the wrong question (laughs) in the sense that as humans, we're always focused on the behavior, on the action, right? And the model you learn in the clutch for doing this work, we call it the action line. Like we're always focused on what should I do or not do? And I don't think that's ever the right question because we all know that you can take an action and it can feel very different depending on what your thoughts are, right? So you can do like go to the park on a day you really don't want to and you're going because you feel guilty and obligated and angry and it feels terrible. (laughs) You can go to the park and it feels amazing. Depends on what you're thinking when you do the action. And so I don't think it's about like which conversations should you opt in or out of or how do you know when to engage. It's how do you want to think and feel about engaging when, like what is your purpose? When does it seem useful to you? When do you want to engage? When are you, you know, engaging because you're trying to control what someone else thinks? When are you engaging because you're trying to persuade? When are you engaging because you're just trying to defend yourself because you're not managing your mind, right? I think it really, I don't think that there's some like rule about it. It really just depends on what your thoughts and feelings are. Like some people I think can, you know, I know a coach who loves arguing with strangers on the internet about <laughs> politics and like she feels like it works sometimes and sometimes she convinces people. And so like that's a totally great use of her time because she feels great doing it. I personally hate doing that. It doesn't feel good to me. I don't like my reasons when I do it. And I think I, you know, do more good by spending that time writing a podcast episode. Like it, it's not about the action. It's about what is the thought and feeling driving it. Well, and the situation or the circumstance can be the same for multiple people, but then it's the thoughts and feelings and then for their action that makes all the difference in the world. So I am all for this conversation. I think one thing that Amy and I both have the tendency to do is ruminate on just a bit, just a bit on working through something, you know, (laughs) and I like, let's say we're having trouble falling asleep at night. Maybe it's a conversation with work or with a friend or with our partner. Is there a way to bridge our brains to really make sure we're resting? Like why do our brains always think that things are such emergencies? Yeah. Well, when, what's happening when you're thinking you're ruminating about the past is that right now you're saying something mean to yourself. They don't like me. I sounded stupid. If I'd done it differently, this would have happened, right? You're telling your brain that the reason you feel a negative emotion right now is the way you behaved in the past. And because you can't change that, but you're your sort of prefrontal cortex, the evolved part of your brain, understands past, present, future. The primitive part of your brain that deals with threats doesn't understand that. And so if you are saying whatever thought you're having now that causes negative feeling about the past, your brain thinks the solution to that is to like think about the past a lot because it, as if it could change it. It's like your brain doesn't understand that the past can't be changed. And really the solution is 
figure out what you're saying to yourself now and change your thought about whatever you're ruminating about. So if you're lying in bed replaying this conversation because your thought is, well, I sounded stupid and I don't think they're going to trust me with the project and blah, 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 whatever. What you need to do is change that thought to something less anxiety producing, whatever that's going to be for you. Like I'm sure, you know, there's, I teach a thought ladder in the clutch, which is like going from just a little bit less mean to yourself or a little bit less negative all the way up. So, you know, there's a million different, like thoughts are different for each person. You kind of have to pick your own, but like my brain isn't an accurate reporter of whether I sounded smart or dumb or these people know me well. And even if that comment did, even if they did think the comment was dumb, that's not going to change all their whole opinion of me. Or if I don't get this project, that's not the end of the world. I'll work on this other, like you have to brainstorm what you're going to think or believe instead. What usually happens is like once you do enough of this work so that you have built up your self-regard a little bit and stop criticizing yourself all the time, you end up, your brain just does that less. It just stops ruminating about stuff like that all the time. I'm just taking this all in. It's so good. Um, And as you have said before, processing emotion doesn't mean to text your girlfriend so that they validate you. (laughs) This one hit for me, to be honest, because I know I've done that. So maybe I need a personal review on why this doesn't work. It works in the short term. It's like eating It cake. does. Yeah. You're like, you're yeah, she's high, got me. But then, it, but then it wears off, right? And then you got to text them again. Or then you got to text somebody else and tell them the same story, right? Like you can't, it doesn't help you resolve it. It's just like a temporary high of validation. So I call this like treating other people like emotional vending machines. It's like you want, you want to punch in the buttons and get the emotion you want. But it doesn't work because your thoughts create your feelings. And often there's like defensiveness going on there, I think. Like... It's like we want to text someone and complain about how terrible someone else is. But when I coach someone on that stuff, usually underneath that anger or defensiveness is actually fear or shame about yourself. So, and that's why we're so desperate to get everyone else to agree that yes, that other person was wrong. Because we think the only other, we think the only options are the other person's wrong or I'm wrong. And so we want everybody to agree with us that the other person is wrong so that we don't have to think that we're wrong. And I just really teach, like, let's step out of that dialectic. Those aren't the only two options. What if nobody's right or wrong? People just have different thoughts about a circumstance outside of them that is open to interpretation. I'm just like, I'm loving everything that you're saying. I'm just like taking um, pauses to process it myself. Um, But as we close out this part of the conversation, I also love how you teach women that they have to have their own back. Mm -hmm. Often, if people are socialized or they identify as female, we've been conditioned to apologize for everything, even when we don't feel like it's warranted. How can this people-pleasing type of apology obsession work against us? Yeah, I think the interesting thing about people-pleasing and the way most people try to deal with it wrong... (laughs) Is that, I mean, I coach on this and teach about it all the time in the clutch because it's obviously such a huge issue. We think that like the solution is to not like give in and make the apology, to not like to feel, it's somehow we, we think the answer is to be like more assertive or something. But really the whole reason that we people please, it's like the answer, it's here's what it is. It's like we think the answer 
is to like be more assertive or aggressive ourselves, <laughs> right? And that isn't really like, it's not an attack and you, and you need to like stop giving in and defend yourself. Instead, that's how we think about it. It's really that when you don't, when I, what I mean when I say we don't have our own backs is that as women, we're taught to, or people socialize as women, we are taught to put ourselves last, doubt ourselves, and care more about what everyone else thinks about us or wants from us than what we think or want for ourselves. And so we are just in a habit of basically constantly throwing ourselves under the bus, or one of my clients once really memorably said, like leaving herself by the side of the road, sacrificing ourselves to gain the approval of other people, right? So ignoring what we want, ignoring what we think, ignoring our own experience in order to, you know, get favor and get approval and get acceptance from other people. So that's what people pleasing really is. But the truth is that is actually, actually people deceiving. You're just lying, right, about what you want. So on its own terms, it doesn't work because if you lie about who you are and what you want to make someone else like you, they don't like you. They like a fake version of you that has totally different desires and beliefs than the real you, right? You're just, you're just giving them like you're playing a role and then they like the role. They don't like you at all. It has nothing to do with you. But when you have your own back, to me, that means that you have learned how to prioritize what you think, what you feel, what you care about. Yeah, you use thought work sometimes to change those things, but only in a way that serves you, serves your life, makes your life bigger and richer and more impactful. And you have, and you have sort of developed the skill of no matter what happens, sort of like no matter what circumstance you encounter, you never are mean to yourself about it. Like that's probably the bottom definition, bottom line definition of having your own back to me. And you're speaking to so much of our audience right now with putting ourselves last, really sacrificing. But those fake friendships, like it's not helping either part of the party whatsoever. And we can't let you go without asking about one of the subjects that you teach so well that really goes hand in hand with this, which is confidence. And you brought up shame, you brought up fear from before, but most people or many people, it's a very common belief of that fake it till you make it mentality. And that that is one of the best ways to build confidence. But you actually disagree. So why do you think that for women who want to build their confidence, build their self-image, maybe they want to work on this piece specifically, what do you recommend instead? Yeah. I mean, if that, if fake it till you make it work, then we wouldn't have 600 books about imposter syndrome. That's true. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah. So the reason fake it till you make it doesn't work is that your thoughts create your feelings, which create your actions. It doesn't go backwards, right? So you can't. You can take an action. You can force yourself to speak in the meeting or submit the brief or whatever. But if you don't change your thoughts and feelings, even if you can force yourself to do the action, like white knuckle it, it's never going to make you feel more confident. I mean, I think what people are referring to, like what you can get is sort of if you do something scary and you don't die, you get like, oh, you get a little boost, like a 10% kind of like, okay, I did, I didn't die. I could probably do it again, <laughs> right? And maybe, listen, maybe it does work for some people. I try not to be like absolutist, you know? Um, lots of people don't agree with me that thoughts cause feelings. So if it works, great. But my experience and all of my people, my clients, my students, my listeners have imposter syndrome, faking it. Often they're very accomplished. Faking it until you make it doesn't work because you're starting from the wrong um, point in the model to try to solve the problem. You can't change your thoughts and feelings. Uh, confidence is a feeling. You can't create a feeling by taking an action. It goes the other way around. So if you want to create confidence you have to change your thoughts about yourself. And so that's where, you know, using 
kind of thought ladders to like go from negative thoughts about yourself to neutral thoughts about yourself to positive thoughts about yourself. A lot of practice, a lot of repetition, the same kind of working on the people pleasing. All of that comes back to confidence. Like confidence is truly just comes from not just the belief that there's nothing wrong with you, but having the trust with yourself that no matter what happens outside of you, like you try something and it fails, you ask someone out and they say no, you argue a big case and you lose, whatever happens, you're not going to use it against yourself. You're not going to be mean to yourself about it. That's where true confidence comes from. The reason people are insecure is that they are scared of how they're going to think and feel if they do something and fail or are rejected or someone else doesn't like it or whatever else. So knowing that you will not, you know, put yourself down no matter what, that's where true confidence comes from, I think. And I know that today we don't have time to go through a full depiction of the model and how you teach, Kara, but we'll make sure that we include this in the notes so that people understand the thoughts, the feeling, the actions, and the latter, um, and on both sides of the other items that we pull in. So thanks for just bringing that up. And if you guys are interested in this and are looking at these pieces, we'll make sure to, to include this in the notes. And come check out the clutch, Abby. Well, yeah. I mean, you have been just a teacher for me. I love the way you teach. I love the way that you talk about, um, like, we're a work in progress. When we start this work, we can't expect to be at the same level of someone that's been doing it for a long time. Like, we're building. Um, Totally. Yeah, like if I took up the violin in quarantine, I wouldn't be like, why aren't I Yo-Yo Ma yet? Right, right, right. (laughs) Exactly. it is really hard to work against things that we have been taught for so long. So most women are taught that making other people happy is more happy is is more important than if she is happy herself. Um, an example you used on a podcast episode of yours that I listened to was the difference between mom guilt, which is very real and alive for a lot of women listening, versus dad guilt. Most men don't feel it. Um, Can you talk us through and give us tips that might help our listeners kind of work through the guilt that they're feeling? Yeah. I mean, I'm going to start to sound like a broken record because truly the answer to everything is learn to change your thoughts and work on that. Um, I think just even noticing like that double standard, right, is that because women are taught that everyone else is more important and that they are fundamentally, their value comes from what they do for other people. If you are not a full-time mother, you're going to have thoughts about that conflict. And then if you are a full-time mother, then your brain's going to be mean to you about something else. Like there's there's nothing to do with your circumstances. (laughs) Yeah. I could, well, the, the escape is learning to change the thoughts, but yeah, there's no way you can change the circumstance, whether you go to an office or you stay home right? Whether you have a job or you're a full-time caregiver, changing that will not make your brain not be mean to you if you don't learn how to manage it. It'll just say something else, right? Stay-at-home mothers' brains say things to them like that they're not doing a good enough job or they're not doing as many crafts as they should or like they should have had a job, right? And your brain will just always tell you you should be doing the other thing. So I think um, especially with mothering, the most effective thing I think is to really do some work to uncover what all your thoughts are about what makes someone a good mother and then decide on purpose what you're going to believe about what makes someone a good mother or not. And then see most of the time when people make these kinds of lists, I find they're already fulfilling them. 
right? The things they really, and that's true in jobs too. Like when I make lawyers make a list of what really makes a good lawyer, like the true fundamentals of whatever the role is, usually you are fulfilling those. And what you're not fulfilling is like the impossible expectations that your brain has made up that are often contradictory and totally nonsensical. That's exactly it. And I think that people look at it a different ways. So for instance, I am very much an achieving personality. So when I identify, okay, what makes that perfect mother? I look at it with like stats and the, mm, the wait, long list so of the things. Yeah. So I that's, didn't say perfect mother. I said good mother. I think that we are conditioned too. Like in my mind, it'll just come out as being the perfect mother. Right. When in reality, catching that, right. There's no sense. <sighs> So many catches. Everyone listening, we're going to be changing the way we speak, (laughs) not only to ourselves, but to others around us as well. And um, I can admit to this. So I have definitely sought that external validation for much of my life. I still do it today in my job with my friendships. So why do we do this? Like, why do we use external validation as our measuring stick? And how can we steer away from this more towards looking internally instead? Yeah. I mean, it's the same answer, right? Why do we want other people to apologize? Because we think that what other people do is what creates our feelings. So we think that we feel confident if other people approve of us. But if that worked, you wouldn't have to do it your whole life, right? You could just get validated once, then you'd be good. It doesn't work because if you don't believe it, you're not thinking it all the time, it's not creating true confidence, right? Validation is just that like sugar high. It's not consistent nourishment, you could say. So it's the same thing. We, any, any, any time that we are trying to get something from someone else to make us feel a certain way, it's because we don't understand that we create our own feelings and we don't know how to do that, right? And so the only option we see is to try to, it's like the vending machine's broken and only works a quarter of the time, but we don't see any other options. We just keep pushing the buttons. And then occasionally we get the reward. And, you know, studies on even mice will show that like intermittent rewards are more chemically addictive than consistent rewards even. So when we intermittently get that reward of validation from someone else, that sugar high, we will just keep, this is why people end up in relationships or friendships with people who are inconsistent with them, right? It's actually, if you, it's like, you don't know how to produce that feeling, that good feeling of confidence on your own. You don't know how to produce dopamine by thinking positive thoughts by yourself, on your own, then you're constantly going to be trying to seek it from other people. Mm. Yep. I can see so many areas of my life right now that I could, could make some changes in. Yeah. Um, and you brought this up a little bit before, Kara, with talking about present versus future versus past thoughts. And we all know we have some control over the present situation. We can't tell the future. We really can't change the past. But today, right now, is something that we can we can do something about today. So, so many of our listeners, I want to make sure we really dive into this because we get messages about this all the time, Kara, where they're fixated on that past. They've gone mm. through really hard things, trauma, neglect, maybe it's infidelity or loss. But what do we do about that? Like, how can we get over living in the past in order to make a positive change today? And one of my struggles is how to not overly fixate on the future. Mm-hmm. Right when we believe that we are what has happened to us, then we will be obsessed with the past. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. for me, that's not a useful thought. Um, the reason that we ruminate and obsess about the past is just like the example I gave earlier of like you can't fall asleep because you're thinking about the meeting, whether it's a meeting or a trauma. Like our brains return to the past because we want to feel better now, and we think that 
we don't, and our brains don't understand how to do that. They think if they think about the past, they can change it. Like nobody really stays up at night thinking about ancient Rome, right? Like (laughs) if only we could go back in time and make Brutus not murder Julius Caesar. But we do, (laughs) right, stay up all night being like, if only I could go back in time and make my boyfriend not have cheated on me. Mm. They're equally impossible, (laughs) right? Like they're equally pointless to think about and cannot be changed. Yesterday is as over as ancient Rome. That's how far away it is. That's how unchangeable it is. But we don't need to change it. All we need to change is the thoughts we are currently having about the past, right? So if you are constantly telling yourself that this terrible thing happened to you in the past that shouldn't have happened and that has fucked you up, it is impossible for you to not obsess about it, right? You've told your brain it's like a danger that damaged you and your brain is evolutionarily wired to constantly be on the lookout for and think about danger. Human brains have a bias for the negative, which means that we more easily remember negative experiences versus positive experiences. Evolutionarily, helpful. Being a human in modern times, not so helpful. So always, like when at, whether you were thinking about the future or the past, the question is always, what feeling am I trying to either fix right now or create? And what would I need to think to change that feeling? So what am I thinking about the past that's creating all this negative emotion? What would I need to change in my thinking to feel differently about it? And when you're worrying about the future, you're almost always just worrying about underneath it like when I coach someone through their fears about the future, it's almost always actually just fear about what mean thing you're going to say to yourself in the future. Even things like, what if I lose my job and end up on the street? When I walk someone through it, most people do have someone they could go stay with, know that they are resourceful, have gotten through financial difficulties before, like could solve the practical problem if they actually were facing it. What they are truly up all night worrying about is all of the mean shaming things that they're going to say to themselves. They're just not aware that that's what they're truly worried about. That's exactly what I needed to hear. Like exactly what you just said there, Cara. Because when you're actually in it, it's not as bad. When you're in the stressors and the things that you were overly fixated on in the future, it's not all that bad. It's just thinking about them that makes it so difficult to think about the future. So I'm glad you said it exactly that way. Yeah. And I think also part of the problem is like when we believe that we can't control anything, then we fear the future as this thing that's going to happen to us. When we start to practice the skill of creating results in our lives that we want on purpose by changing our thoughts, then we understand that no matter what happens to us in the future, we will have the tools we need. Like, listen, all of us are going to end up dying, right? Like that's coming for everybody. And short of that is any other number of things that can happen to somebody, you know, mild or serious. But no matter what, if you know how to manage your mind, you know you can show up for whatever happens in your life in a different way. So you know that you can create the future that you want and that as a human, also some shit's going to happen in the future that you didn't want to happen. <laughs> and that right. if you know how to manage your mind, you know it's not about like positivity all the time right? Like your parents are going to pass away. You might get sick. Someone you love is going to die. Like these things are going to happen just because we're alive and human. It's not about being chipper about those, but it's about knowing like I have my own back. I know how to manage my mind. I will be able, like those two things will allow me to show up for the challenges of life in a way that helps me grow, not in a way that has me just cowering in fear. 
So good. Um, I cannot tell you how much of a pleasure this has been to interview you today. I don't think any guest has ever given us such pause. I'm like, wow, I'm really going to take that answer in. Um, So I'm so excited to continue working through the first five weeks of the clutch and beyond. Yeah, it's it's really a good feeling to be able to bring awareness to my own thoughts and navigate myself intentionally through Mm -hmm. life. So you have an enormous fan and supporter in me. Please tell our listeners where they could find (laughs) more of you. Um, And I would love if you left us with one last piece of advice that you would hope that everyone would know. Yeah. Um, Well, you can find me on my podcast, which is called Unfuck Your Brain. It's on all the podcast apps. And if you already listened to this and you were like, yes, I need more of this, The Clutch is it is where you should go. It's unfuckyourbrain.com forward slash The Clutch. So you can hang out with the two of us there. Um, It's amazing. It's the best place on earth. (laughs) I think that might be Disneyland's motto, but I'm still in it. Um, It's much more life-changing than Disney. Uh, The one piece of advice I think that everyone should know. You can actually change things that you never thought you could change in your life if you learn to manage your mind. I think that really is the bottom line. Like my life is so dramatically different than it was five years ago, all because I learned that my thoughts create my feelings and my actions and that I can change my thoughts on purpose. It truly felt like I learned the secret to the universe that no one had ever taught me before when I learned it. And I think that's like, that's what I do now. That's my mission is to teach as many other women as possible because I think that liberation is an inside job and it has to start in our minds. Thank you again, Kara, so much. And for anybody listening who's looking into coaching or more advice, like what Kara shared today, if you want to start creating those results that we have been talking about, definitely check out Unfuck Your Brain and also The Clutch. They're both included in the notes below. Thanks again. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me.